Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We give you thanks for your mercy and grace to us through the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to discuss uh, extremely important issues. And we pray for your help, your blessing, give us understanding, give us clarity, and uh, give us uh, hearts that are ready to receive your word. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. This is going to be a three-session series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. There are eight Beatitudes, and I have three weeks to do this in. And this is going to be every other week. So there's going to be another event happening next week, and then I will be on again and, until we're done, three, three different weeks, every other week. Uh, so because there's eight Beatitudes, I've divided it up so that today we will do an introduction to the Beatitudes plus the first two, and then from then on we'll do three, uh, three Beatitudes per week. I've drawn heavily from others. Uh, for the subject matter that we're going to be dealing with today. Matthew chapter 5 is where we find the Beatitudes, but if we go back to chapter 4 to get a little context, Jesus has been baptized, John the Baptist has been arrested, and Jesus has begun to teach in Galilee. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls his disciples in verses 18 to 22, and then we read in verse 23, this is Matthew 4, And Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We read also that his fame went through all Syria and crowds were coming to him from everywhere. So that's the brief context of the Sermon on the Mount. Now I want to deal with, an, uh, first of all, with the issue of the kingdom of heaven. In chapters 5 to 7, Jesus gives what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Six times in this sermon... He mentions the kingdom of heaven. What was the kingdom of heaven? None of the other gospel writers mention the kingdom of heaven. They call it the kingdom of God. I don't have proof for this, but I think it's possible that Matthew, like many Jewish people even today, felt that God's name was holy, therefore will only refer to him with euphemisms like this. Instead of saying the kingdom of God, he says the kingdom of heaven, referring to God, meaning God. Today, Jewish people will use words like Hashem, which means the name to refer to God. They won't actually say the word for God. 
but they will just simply say Hashem, or they'll call, it, call God the Almighty, or the one above. Even in writings today, I, I see this all the time, where they'll write the word God, but they won't they'll just put a hyphen between the G and the D and not spell it out. In any case, Matthew substitutes heaven for God here. Now, I, I looked in other places in Matthew, and he does use the word God. So I don't know. I don't know why here, particularly, he's using heaven instead of God, but he does. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, what does he mean? Donald Carson brings up some interesting thoughts on the kingdom of God. He says it can refer to God's sovereignty over everything. God has always been ruling over all, and when Christ came, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. Everyone, whether he likes it or not, is in this kingdom. But this is not what is meant here in our passage. In this sermon, not everyone is in the kingdom. In John 3, 3, and uh, John chapter 3, verse 3 and 5, Jesus says that unless one is born from above or born again, he cannot enter, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. In Mark 9, 45 and verse 47, Jesus equates entering life and entering the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom is to enter into life. There is a prerequisite for entering the kingdom. This narrower meaning is Christ's kingdom of his chosen ones, or those who have been born from above. This appears to be the kingdom of heaven Jesus is speaking of in this sermon. He speaks of certain people as being in that kingdom. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, which is part of this Sermon on the Mount, he tells people to enter through the narrow gate. And at the end, in verses 21 to 23, he exhorts them to enter that kingdom. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 to 12, Jesus speaks of the sons of the kingdom being cast into outer darkness. He's referring to the Jews who rejected him. They were the ones who had received the promises of God and were the expected members of the kingdom. Instead, Jesus says, many from east and west would sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. That is, those who believe. And I take it that means Gentiles. Jesus also indicated that there was a present aspect to the kingdom. People are now entering the kingdom. And a future aspect when he returns to receive the kingdom. In Luke 19, verses 11 and following, Jesus indicates that he would be going away and coming back. The disciples also asked him after the resurrection if he would then be establishing the kingdom. So there is a future aspect to the kingdom when he returns. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of heaven refers to those who have the favor of God and are believers and are in God's kingdom. In Matthew, uh, 
Next, I want to deal with a little bit with just the word beatitude and uh, what the beatitudes are. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, there are eight beatitudes. We get the word beatitude from Latin, and the Latin word is B-E-A-T-U-S, beatus, maybe, I don't know, I don't speak Latin. Uh, it means blessed, and so these are the blessings. Uh, the Greek word used in the New Testament also means blessed. So what does that mean? One author has said that in the scriptures, man can bless God and God can bless man. Basically, it means to be approved or to find approval. When we bless God, we are praising Him. When He blesses us, He is showing His approval of us. God's approval is the highest blessing. His blessing is true joy, true contentment, true peace, true well-being. And it, it is a right relationship to Him. God is blessed. He has all those things. He is truly full of joy, contentment, peace, well-being. He is truly blessed. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. 1 Timothy 6.15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. And God wants to bless us as well. Jesus is going to show us how to have God's blessing. God's ways are not man's ways. Man left to himself has no recourse but to seek blessedness that is merely outward, physical, not of the heart, not true blessedness. We are in rebellion and cannot obtain true blessedness that is internal and of the heart. All we can do is seek external, temporal blessedness from material things. Very surfacy type of blessing. My wife's brother, uh, my brother-in-law, was an insurance salesman with State Farm in Wisconsin. And one day he told us that he has noticed, or he had noticed, that uh, when people got divorced, often they would come in buying a new car. Um, he understood that to be that they were using a new car to try to patch up a hurt heart. Um, God's blessedness that he offers us is a matter of the heart. New cars do not deal with the heart. Only God can give us this true blessedness that is not subject to external conditions. In Matthew 5, verse 1, uh, it says this, Now when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Note that he sat down. This was the way the rabbis taught in those days. Apparently, it was when sitting that they spoke authoritatively. The culture, we, our culture is different today. We usually, our speakers stand. But in those days, they sat. Uh, the that tradition or that custom 
has prevailed over the centuries so that even in the Catholic Church, the Pope speaks ex cathedra or from his chair when he's speaking authoritatively. In universities today, professors are given a chair at the university, meaning an honorable position. Jesus sat down, and what he was going to say was going to be authoritative. His disciples were there, but according to Matthew 7, 28 to 29, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice that there, was, there were crowds. So it wasn't just the disciples that were there. Everybody was there. And they were listening. In verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2, we read, And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. This was a common way of speaking that indicated that what was coming was serious business. And we're going to see that it truly was. So let's begin with the first beatitude. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some have considered this sermon to be for a different age. Can't be for us since there's no way that we could ever fulfill what is being required by the Lord. But hasn't God's standard always been out of reach? Listen to this. This is taken from Luke 10, 25 to 28. And behold, a scholar of the law stood up and was putting him to the test. That is Jesus, putting Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. <laughs> that, was, that was not an encouraging word. <laughs> Nobody can do it. That's the problem. Yeah. You have, have you ever pondered that exchange between this lawyer and Jesus? Keep the law? Who can do it? No one. Not even close. And that's the way it's always been. God's standard is his own perfection. So let's not kid ourselves. Jesus is speaking to us in our present age, telling us how we enter his kingdom. And how we are to live in his kingdom, as members of his kingdom. His standard is perfection. Yes, our conclusion should be that we don't measure up. That's the whole point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're going to deal with that. Uh, one man has said that in this Sermon on the Mount... Jesus shows that no man's righteousness can survive the scrutiny of God. No man's righteousness can survive the scrutiny of God. And so, 
we come to the, the first beatitude, poor in spirit, blessed are they. So what does this mean? Matthew uses a word that means beggarly poor. To crouch, the word means to crouch, to cringe, to be like a beggar. Utterly destitute. Um, in Luke 16, verse 20, there was a beggar named Lazarus that was laid at the gate of a rich man. In the, in the Can, uh, King James Version and the Geneva translation of the Bible, they translate it as beggar. But it can also be translated as poor. But this is beggarly poor, the very bottom. There was another word that Jesus used, another word, not this, not this same word, in Luke 21, verse 2, of the poor widow who gave two coins. She was poor, but not beggarly poor. She, gave, she had two coins. This word that we're using, the beggarly poor word, is used in Luke 6, 20, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Now, Luke's account is minimal as to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And all he says is, blessed, he has Jesus saying, blessed are the poor. Um, so what did he mean? Economically poor? How do we understand that? We have to compare Scripture with Scripture. The Luke account is minimal in what it says. Matthew's account we need Matthew's account to understand what Jesus meant. We compare Scripture with Scripture, and the clearer passage informs the less clear. From Matthew, we understand that Jesus is talking about extreme spiritual poverty. This is poor in spirit. This is not talking about some, someone who is poor-spirited. That is, mamby-pamby, limp-wristed, who has no gumption. He's not talking about that kind of person. This refers to someone who realizes he is destitute before God. This is an issue of the heart. He has nothing in himself that would make him acceptable to God. This is one whose attitude is expressed in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. And I quote, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble, and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Why does Jesus begin with the poor in spirit? Actually, I think it's because it's foundational. This is the bottom line. This is where we have to come. This is the condition that we need to be in. This is the attitude we must have. We are spiritually destitute. This is hard for us to see because we usually think of ourselves as being pretty good. But... The Bible indicates that we're totally unable to keep God's law. Totally unable to measure up to his standard. Utterly unable to save, <clears throat> save ourselves. What can you offer God? 
How will you cover your sin? We are absolutely and utterly destitute spiritually, having nothing with which to commend ourselves to God. We must recognize that and come to God with that kind of heart attitude. Everything else is built on this foundational truth. We are beggarly poor before God. This is the attitude of heart that we have to have to enter into Christ's kingdom. And it is the attitude that we have as members of his kingdom. But we have a real problem, don't we? I don't know you. Most of you I don't know. I know some of you. But I know that you have a real problem with pride. You're proud. So am I. It's our, it's our problem as being the de descendants of Adam. We all have that problem. I've noticed in my brief sojourn thus far that reformed people are noted for their pride. That's us. For some reason, the reformed people think they've had truth by the tail. And it makes them proud. We know. You don't. <laughs> it seems so incongruous. It's turning truth on its head. Turning it inside out. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul says this, knowledge puffs up. Boy, does it. He goes on to say, love builds up. But then in verse 2, he says this, if anyone thinks that he has known anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Whew, down we go. All pride gone. Whatever you think you know, fine, good. Know it, but realize you don't even begin to know as you ought to know. See, that's what Paul says. It's okay to know, but you don't know as you ought to know. Actually, I'm finding that the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. So, if anything, the Reformed people should be noted for a very deep humility. Because we know the truth. We think we do. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, you know, we should be extremely contrite of heart and humble before God and before people. It's absolute insanity when you stop and think about it. We find all kinds of ways to express our pride. Our good looks, our wealth, some ability that we think we have, some achievement. But what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have to commend you to God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Paul was a pretty cocky fellow before the Lord got a hold of him and whittled him down to size. But the Lord did that and uh, turned him totally around. Paul enumerates his greatness in Philippians 3, 5 to 6. And then he says, I count all things to be loss. And count them to be but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That was the new attitude of Paul. In Romans 7, 18 he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So there had been a massive change of heart in Paul. Humanly, 
He had much to be proud of, but he had become a new creation, poor in spirit. You know, in Proverbs 16, verse 5, the, uh, the Lord says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And uh, that's a big problem we have. We're very proud people. We find all kinds of stuff to be proud about. And there's, there's absolutely no reason for it at all. One author mentions Augustine and Luther as examples of pride. Augustine was so proud of his intellect and wealth and prestige that he couldn't receive the gospel. Until one day, of course, the Lord brought him down. Luther entered a monastery to try to enter the kingdom by meditation, self-inflicted suffering, deprivation. I actually witnessed this when I was a, about a freshman or sophomore in high school. Uh, I was in the Philippines at Faith Academy, and our dorm, uh, our, our boys' dorm, uh, got in some vehicles, and the, our house parents took us to Subic Navy Base um, to camp out on the beach. This was at Easter time. The Philippines, Catholic country, Spain had been there. Uh, and as we were going along, the we got into these crowds of people on the road, and there were what they called flagellantes there. You know what a flagellante is? I think it must be a Spanish word. Uh, the, the, the priests had lacerated their backs, cut them greatly, and then these men were going down the road with hoods over their head, and they had these whips that they were whipping themselves, and the blood was splattering, and, and uh, why do they do that? This is the kind of thing that Luther, you know, that was right down that alley, uh, trying to, you know, for whatever purpose they had, trying to seek blessedness, approval from God for doing this to themselves. And concerning Luther, after years of failing to ever make it, he realized that all those sacrifices and rituals and self-abuse accomplished nothing. Being empty-handed, he came to Jesus by faith and immediately entered the kingdom of God. Jesus gave us an example of this in Luke 18, 9 to 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was proud of his outward righteousness, but the tax collector was unwilling to look to heaven but beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He knew he had nothing to offer God. He could only cry out for God to be merciful to him. And Jesus' evaluation was this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The principle is found in James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. God wants us to be humble. We have nothing to offer him. Nothing. Then, then there's the example of Gideon. I'm going to read a little bit from that account. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him, to Gideon, and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. <laughs> I, I sense some humor there, but I don't, I'm not sure. Mighty man of valor? <laughs> uh, oh, really? Uh, 
He was then beating out wheat in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites that were ravaging the land. And when the Lord told him what he wanted him to do, he replied that his clan was the least in Manasseh and he was the youngest in his father's house. In other words, what he was saying was he was at the bottom of the respect ladder, of the, of, uh, the authority chain. He was at the very bottom. So who would listen to him? What could he do? But that was the attitude that God uses. Those who know they are nothing in themselves. Because then God can show his mighty power. And we know how he used Gideon. So pride. Pride is a big problem for us. What does poor in spirit mean? Humility. Without pride. Without self-reliance. Brokenness before God. Destitute. Empty-handed. We realize our own utter helplessness and expect nothing from self and everything from God. What are the results of being poor in spirit? I came across a number of things that I think are helpful by way of application as being results of being poor in spirit. One, this is how we enter the kingdom. We come to, to the Lord and all we can do is ask for mercy. And Jesus invites us to come to him. Jesus said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whose? The poor in spirit. Stripped of all our merit, realizing we have nothing with which to commend ourselves to God, we come to him and cry out for his mercy through Jesus, the Lamb of God, who paid the price for our sin. Another thing, we can't do this, this being poor in the spirit thing. We can't do this ourselves. This is a work of God in the heart. We must cry out to him to grant us a heart like this. We can't put ourselves down. We're already down. We must face that fact and come to God as broken people. Selling everything you have, wounding or tormenting yourself, dressing in old crummy robes, sitting in a monastery won't do it either. That'll only make you proud. Being poor in spirit is a work of God. God opening your eyes to see yourself as you really are. Utterly unable and in desperate need of him. Another thing, get into God's word. Read it. Ask God to reveal truth to your heart. Beggars are always begging, so ask. God tells us to ask. Ask of him to give you a heart that fears him, loves him. This doesn't mean long prayers. It does mean that we're forever turning to him for his assistance and enablement. Another uh, application that I found was this. I will take Christ on his terms, not my own. Proud people want Christ and their adultery. Christ and their covetousness. Christ and their sin. The poor in spirit are so desperate they'll give up everything to have Christ. And that's the way God wants us. Another thing, I will never complain about my situation. I don't deserve anything anyway. I only deserve hell and anything more than that is grace. I'll do whatever I must 
without complaining, but at the same time cry out to God for help in my situation. Another thing, I will not be preoccupied with myself. I'll be absorbed in the Lord and others. Another, I will look for the godly character in people and not seek to tear them down. I'll be, I'll be slow to criticize, knowing that I'm a beggar in so much need of God's grace. Another thing, I will thank God for his assistance and his enablement. The poor in spirit are a thankful people, full of gratitude. They know that all they have is a gift from God. Yeah. So the question is, are we poor in spirit? This is how we come into the kingdom. This is how we live in the kingdom. This is how we come to Christ. This is how we walk with Christ. If you are poor in spirit, Jesus says the kingdom is yours. You are one blessed person. You have God's approval. And of course, we know that that's only through the Lord Jesus who paid the price. He was the sacrifice for our sin. And through him, we can have God's righteousness, his very own righteousness imputed to us and have forgiveness of our sins. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says this, For thus says the one high and lifted up, who dwells forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the crushed and lowly in spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. These are those in his kingdom, who have his approval and have life and are truly blessed. So I notice here by this that in this sermon, Jesus later on talks about the gate into life being narrow. And I think he indicates here that it's very, very low. You have to crawl to get in, so to speak. So let's go to the uh, next beatitude, the second one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm going to begin by reading uh, from Genesis chapter 37, verses 31 to 34. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please recognize it, whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days mourning sorrow job 5 7 for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward you've noticed that there's a lot of mourning going on in this world we are in a world of hurt I've been told that languages or cultures come up with vocab, vocabulary, that mirrors or expresses what is important in that culture. I'm going to give you an example. 
in the West, in Europe and here in the U.S., traditionally rice has not been a staple dish for us. And, uh, but we do have rice, and we have a word for it, rice. We plant rice, we harvest rice, um, we eat rice. It's all rice. But in Indonesia, it's different. Rice there is a staple. That is a big thing to them. So they have different words for it. They have um, padi, which is rice in the field. They're growing padi. They have gaba, that is rice that's been harvested but not ready to sell in the market. It's unpolished. And then there's bras, which is rice sold in the market. And then on my plate is nasi that I eat. All those words for rice. Now, I, I use this as an example because in this world, we have much sorrow. There are many words for sorrow because we're so well acquainted with this. And we describe it in different ways with different words. We have the word mourn. We mourn. We bemoan. We bewail or wail. We cry. Keen. You know, have you ever heard the word keen? Loud keening. It's wailing. Lament. Sorrow. Weep. Agonize. Sob. Groan. We can, maybe we can go on and on. I don't know. Maybe you can add more words to this. I'll add one more word. Ululate. Have you ever heard of that word? Ululate? When I was uh, six years old, my parents took me and we began to live in a village on the south coast of Dutch New Guinea, right north of Australia. And we were out there in the jungle. And... Uh, the people there, just like us, have many, many sorrows. And the people, when somebody died, they would ululate. That is, howl with grief. They also had dogs there. But these are not like our dogs. And the nearest thing I know that they're, they're like is like dingoes from Australia. So we, I, seeing pictures of dingoes reminds me of the dogs that we had there, that the people had. And these dogs had lost the ability to bark. They were um, genetically impaired, I guess you'd say. But boy, they could ululate. <laughs> and if you're, if we're in the village and you heard this loud wailing start, you, did, you could not differentiate between whether it's people or, or a pack of dogs. They, they, they sounded the same. Uh, that's to ululate. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was just, uh, it, that was really something to, to experience. But there's many words. We have many words for our sorrow because we have much sorrow. I read that there are nine words in the New Testament that indicate mourning. And the word used here is the deepest word, mostly used of sorrow when someone dies. This word is used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek 
translation of the Old Testament. And, th and this is the word that they used when speaking of what I read a while ago about Jacob sorrowing or mourning over Joseph. Deep sorrow. And in the New Testament, in Mark 16.10, we read this. She, Mary Magdalene, went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning, that's the word, and crying. They were deeply sorrowful. We can't criticize them too, too much because even though Jesus had told them what was going to happen, they didn't get it. Uh, we wouldn't have gotten it either. Luke 18, 34 says, but the disciples understood none of these things. This is right after he told them that he was going to die and, and rise again. The disciples understood none of these things. And this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. You know, our, that's, that's the way we are. We don't understand. Things, a lot goes right over our, our heads, right over our hearts, and we don't understand. Um, and that's why Peter speaks of, of repeating things to the, his, his hearers so that they would not forget. Because we tend to forget, and that's the way we learn. We learn by repetition. Now, we could go into what improper sorrowing is. We don't have time for that. Sorrow taken to an extreme, demonstrating the lack of trust in God. And then there's proper sorrow, the sorrow of mourning over somebody who has died. But we need to deal with the mourning that Jesus means here. This is the mourning that brings blessing. What kind of mourning brings blessing? In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he speaks about another letter he had written them in which he had rebuked them causing them sorrow. And I'll jump right into the middle of this text in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. Paul says this, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance, for you were made to have godly sorrow. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret. So what is godly sorrow? It is a sorrow that leads to repentance. It goes hand in hand with repentance. This would be the concomitant or accompanying result of being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit and sorrowing over your own sin. One writer put it this way, it's the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. The emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit recognizes that I'm under God's judgment, his wrath because of my sin, and I can offer nothing to save myself. My heart has been changed, and I grieve over my sin. This is the kind of mourning of a person that comes to Christ, and it's the attitude of those who have come to Christ. This is the attitude of those who enter the kingdom. And it's the ongoing attitude of them after they have entered the kingdom. The world says, what? Don't worry, be happy. James 4, 8 to 9 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn. Here's the word, mourn. Cry. Let your laughter be turned to mourning your joy to gloom. 
In other words, look at reality. You are in big, big trouble. Repent. Mourning is the reaction of someone who is poor in spirit. This kind of mourning brings blessing because it turns to God. It turns to the only one who can grant forgiveness and cleanse us from our sin. What is meant here is a mourning of the heart over spiritual issues, over the sin issue. This is mourning over my sin, but I think it even reaches out in, and, and affects me to mourn over sin around us as well. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I thought, had some helpful things to say on this. Um, in Romans 8.29, we read, Those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. So, we're to be like Christ. Right? That's what it says. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, then the question is, what was Jesus like? Did Jesus mourn? You know, what kind of example did he leave us? We're to be like him. So what did he do? What was his attitude? The Bible never speaks of Jesus laughing. Isn't that interesting? It never speaks of him laughing. Maybe he did, but we aren't told that he did. He showed emotion, compassion, anger, he is described in Isaiah 53, verse 3, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wept at the grave of Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. And I think the reason is that Jesus knew more than anybody what the stakes were. The issues of life. He knew our true condition. He knew it like nobody else knew it. We see, and we, we see this world, and, and everything is foggy. We don't think of eternity too much. We're here. We're here very briefly, like a vapor. We're described as being a vapor. But what happens here in our brief sojourn on this earth has eternal consequences. Jesus understood that. Life is not a lark. Multitudes were on the broad road, and they are today. Jesus had a much deeper perspective than we do. We don't sense it. We don't see it like he did. It is true that the scripture says a merry heart does good like a medicine. <clears throat> Proverbs 17, 22. And I'm sure Jesus was full of joy, but, he, but the reality of life, heaven, hell, would not seem to leave room for frivolity and foolishness that we're so fond of. Jesus said in the parallel passage in Luke 6, 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. 
As I was thinking about these things, I recalled that Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. And I was thinking about that. And one thing that caused Jesus to have compassion, there's different passages that talk about him having compassion. Some are, one time it was, he saw that they had no food, and it says he had compassion. He was concerned about them lacking physical sustenance. But he also had compassion in a different respect, too. In Mark 6, 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The result of sin. He mourned. Um, In this case, compassion presupposes mourning over the consequences of sin. They had no shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The result of sin. And Jesus mourned over the consequences of sin. It's probably why he mourned over Lazarus's tomb. You know, that uh, he saw what sin had done and how it affected people. And he mourned over Jerusalem because they, had re- they rejected uh, the Messiah uh, during his, when he came. They rejected him. Um, <clears throat> he mourned over what sin had done to people. Another interesting thing is that Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. So, what did Paul do? Let's find out what Paul had to say. How did he walk? This is what Romans 7, 24 says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Sounds like someone poor in spirit, who is mourning over this massive struggle with his flesh, his sin. He says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In chapter 8 of Romans, he says, We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul groaned, he moaned under the weight of his flesh and Uh, the struggles that he had uh, over the issue of sin. And along with Paul, we also groan and grieve that we don't live the life that we were meant to live. And we struggle continually against sin and, and our flesh and with the results of sin. We mourn over sin in the world. We mourn over the degeneracy of society the rebellion against God in government, schools, churches. We mourn over the wars, the crime, the filthy talk, immorality, false teaching, and lack of true allegiance to Christ that we find in our churches. And God says, those who mourn are blessed. Why are they blessed? Why do they find favor with God? Because they are poor in spirit. And they've repented. They mourn over their sin. And they will be comforted, Jesus says. And here's the blessing. Those who are poor in spirit find their salvation in Christ. They have no hope in themselves. They cast themselves on the Lord Jesus who died for them and rose to give them life. These are the ones who in turn then mourn and who repent. They've had a heart transplant. They are a new creation. Jesus says they are blessed. They find favor with God. And they will be comforted. 
They are comforted, resting in God's promises, being reconciled to God, becoming his own. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. His spirit brings his promises to our minds and sustains us in our trials. And these people will be comforted in the end. Isaiah says, the Messiah's coming would be to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning. Isaiah 61, 2 and 3. Those who mourn are continually comforted in this life by the forgiveness and strengthening we receive from Christ through the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, they will be comforted in the regeneration when according to Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will, be no longer, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. Folks, we're living in the time of the first things right now. And our time here is very brief. Uh, <clears throat> we need to pray that God enable us to constantly demonstrate a spirit of, of having a, a spirit of poverty of spirit, of and of mourning over sin, our own sin, and just the results of sin that we see all around us. God wants us to have that kind of attitude. May he give you and me an attitude of mourning over our sin and the sin in the world. And uh, being his, being a, a demonstration of his mercy and grace to other people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this time. Thank you for what Jesus has taught us in his word uh, about being poor in spirit. Lord, we have nothing to offer you. And we mourn, we grieve over this great burden of sin that it, it just presses down on this whole world. And on our own souls. We grieve under this, Lord, and we look forward to the day um, when this will be lifted and when Jesus will return and receive us to himself. We give you thanks. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we all will demonstrate poverty of spirit and mourn over the sin that is around us. In Jesus' name, amen.